Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are the real business dialogue odcast for leaders and category designers with a different mind. On this oddcast, uh, we feature a very impressive uh, group of folks, real dialogues with people who are making our world a different place. Everybody from entrepreneurs, millionaires, billionaires, world leaders, military commanders, um, tons of globally recognized authors, thinkers, uh, real estate tycoons, artists, fierce venture capitalists, Hall of Fame athletes, and uh, category creating and defining people of all kinds, all of whom are following their different in hopes that it inspires you and me to follow our different. Now, on this episode, all of us want the best health care for our families, our communities, and our country. But legacy approaches and technologies in the United States often stop our healthcare heroes from being able to deliver the legendary care they want to deliver. On this episode, the extraordinary Dr. Ashvini Zanoz. Dr. Ash is an extraordinary uh, human being. You see, she's a radiologist who became the chief medical officer of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. From there, she joined the technology industry and became the chief medical officer at Salesforce.com. And now Dr. Ash is the CEO of a venture-backed startup called Kamir. And Kamir is a company on a mission to produce a breakthrough in digital health. Her personal life story will inspire you. Her accomplishments are incredible. We'll dig into the learnings from the COVID crisis, what our healthcare heroes need in technology to connect, empower, and protect both themselves and their patients using the power of data, why Dr. Ash says it is time for an operating system for healthcare, because she says, how can we care for the whole person without the right data? By the end of this dialogue, you'll gain deep insights into the future of healthcare technology and be inspired by how much one woman is digging in to make a giant difference. Now, my friends at Acceleration Economy are hosting a legendary virtual event called the Digital CIO Summit. And it is not a stretch to say that some of the smartest people in the technology world are going to be participating. And when some of the brightest minds in technology are willing to come together, particularly at this kind of moment of uncertainty, of technology breakthrough, this is an incredible opportunity to learn from legendary CIOs, people like FedEx's Rob Carter, ASU's Lev Gonick, and Goya Foods' Suvavit Basu, and many more. So join me. I will be speaking as well, but please don't let that dissuade you. You can register for free today at aeciosummit.com. That's aeciosummit.com. And now, put your mind in a different place, and hey-ho, let's go. All right. Well, doctor, it sure is great to see you. How are you? I can't complain. I'm feeling pretty good today. It's a warm day. It's Valentine's Day. So, you know, what's there to complain about? Love is in the air. Are you feeling love today? I'm feeling very loved today. I've got <laughs> two beautiful little kids who went to school without giving me a hard time. And that's the best gift I could ask for. So great. So mom got her Valentine's gift this morning. Excellent. <laughs> Now, I have been um, anticipating our discussion for quite some time, since the moment your folks reached out. I mean, you just have the most incredible background, which, you know, we can certainly get into, but a fascinating, fascinating career so far. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, we're now sort of post the crisis part of COVID. Would that be a fair way to characterize it, Ash? I would say it's yet to be seen. Okay. I hope so. But, you know, I think... um, it's not just the healthcare part, right? There's a lot of other secondary, like there's other implications for the for the pandemic that we're you know we're seeping into with uh, the economy, the downturn, what's going to happen. Or, so there's a lot of stuff that's happening around us that's related to the pandemic and as a result of to, of the pandemic. So it's yet to be seen, but yeah, I would say that at least the crisis is over. We know the devil, you know, it's a devil we know. Um, right. But yeah, let's see. And now with a little bit, a little bit of hindsight, 
how well do you think we did uh, here in the United States and, and frankly globally in terms of responding and trying to save lives and, and, and where we've landed after the going through the belly of the beast? I've struggled with this a little bit, Christopher. Just look, I think partly we've done a really poor job because we keep trying to reinvent the wheel every time there's a pandemic. And that part is really frustrating from a healthcare, public health perspective. We're a nation that can be ready for a lot of these sort of things. And we've had other pandemics and epidemics in our past, right? Going back to the flu. So we've come a long way, but it's as though we just don't learn from our mistakes. So our public health is just not ready. We don't invest in it. And as soon as something is done, we're like, oh yeah, that crisis is done. Let's move on, right? Let's go on. But I'm like, what about the next crisis? Or what if this thing comes back bigger you know, and worse, right? So we're just not ready. But from a people perspective, and then, you know, one more thing to that, I think we also didn't do a really great job of communicating. You know, it's almost like we expect our political leaders and our healthcare leaders to just know everything, like what, what this is, what's going to happen, tell us. People don't know. In, in a lot of these areas, when there's crisis, they're also trying to figure it out. Maybe they're a little bit ahead of the game, but you know, it's kind of like uh, crisis comms, right? Like in, when you're in a company or in a situation, you've got to just communicate with people. And I think what's most frustrating to me is it's as if like our government assumed that we were all stupid and just didn't tell us, like give us all the data. I'm like, people aren't stupid. Just tell us. We may be on different sides of the fence and that's okay. Everybody should have an opinion. But I think communication is key. You got to over communicate and say, I just don't know. We don't know what's coming. And so here's how we would recommend, but we just don't know. Mask works. We don't know. We, you know, are the vaccines 100%? We don't know. But here's the data, right? Um, should everybody be back in schools or should schools get shut off? We don't know. In hindsight, we shouldn't have stopped our kids from going to school in person. It really held a lot of communities back. I saw the effect on my own kids, right? So I think there are some things that I was really frustrated about from a higher level. But when you look around globally, overall, I think we've done a really good job with decreasing the number of deaths. I think we've done the best we can. Uh, people that do believe in the vaccines, right, they felt like we've come so far with the scientific advances to get a vaccine to the market. So it's a mixed bag for me. All in all, I felt like, you know, we could have done better as a, as a nation from, as, from a governance perspective. And it sounds like, uh, doctor, that you're not sure that we're any better off to respond to the next one or some similar like uh, major global or, or countrywide healthcare crisis. Are you like, do you feel confident that if, you know, I don't know, COVID-22 came along in a week or, you know, we had balloons dropping stuff from the sky? I don't like or do you feel prepared? I don't think we're any more prepared, unfortunately. I would, what I would love to see is the government come out of this to say, we have a strong public health task force. We're prepared. You know, we're tracking these things. Here's what we see. You know, there's a public place for information to be available. You know, is that the CDC? Like who, somebody who's in charge in our government that we can go check the website. We can go hear from them. I, I'd like to see how they're prepared. What if there's another one of these and it's worse, right? How are you going to disseminate information? Do you feel prepared? I, I don't. And as somebody who cares deeply about our community, our country, and our world, it was a frightening thing when we found out that um, we didn't have enough PPE by way of example. And, um, you know, some of us in business were in a position to do things. I know you were at Salesforce at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And I had some relationships and contacts and, was able to get gloves and masks and, and make some ma major purchases and donate them to our local hospitals in need. And, and it, at the time, it seemed like for me as an individual and as a family, the group of us coming together to try to do this to help supply our hospitals in need, it seemed ridiculous. Like why is one small family able to source gloves and, and, and many other things? And and our hospital system cannot uh, as a private citizen, as a business person. But of course, we all tried to do what we could to help at the time. That, that was not the time to ask. But I think now is. And some people in Congress are now saying, hey, we should have a, uh, a committee, look, a special committee formed. And we should go back and study what happened during COVID. 
And what can we do better? And I I don't know where things stand on that idea right now. Maybe maybe you can tell me, but it seems like that would be a wise thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see a permanent public health organization or task force in government, like I said. And it can be, we don't have to form new areas of government, right? Like there's plenty of organizations that can take this charge on to be prepared. Everything from a virus, like a global virus situation to national disasters. I kind of feel like we've, we're just left unprepared on the broader communication strategy, or do we have enough, you know, storage of whatever's needed in these situations? Like, how do you even bucket these disasters, right? Like, I'd like to see a broader organizational thinking and structure, like you would, let's say, in a big corporation that's getting ready for new product launch or new stuff that they're doing, right? There's always like, Here's our broad strategy. Here's the people that are responsible for it. Here's a single throat to choke in that organization. Here's how we collaborate. Here's our comms plan. I would love to see that. And like I said, it could be the NIH. It could be the CDC. We don't need new new government organizations, but empower somebody to be that person, right? Or to be that team. That's what I would love to see. And if Congress is taking a stance on this, I'd love for them to go back this is a bipartisan, nonpartisan issue, in my opinion. It's kind of like the veterans. You, you got to just think about this from a overall perspective. Like, look what this has done to our global economy, right? This is that has broader implications on this stuff. So, um, I'd like, yeah, I'd like for them to think through this and come up with a plan and communicate it to all of us. Like this, the stupidest thing, and I hate to use that word, right? But the dumbest thing I heard was like oh, we're going to shut off travel to these countries. I'm like, great. Do you know that people can get to X, Y, and Z country through other routes? Uh, What is the broader plan there? Are you planning to test everybody? Are you planning to require vaccination? Oh, no, we're only going to require vaccination for foreign nationals, but not for Americans. Okay, why? You don't think that, you know, our citizens can bring in X, Y, and Z diseases from... Just why don't we have a broader strategy, right? Let's not make this about a political statement or citizenship or whatever. Like, we need to be thinking about the impact that this is going to have on our nation and the long range issues that it's going to create if you don't think more holistically. That's what I'd love to see from Congress and our and our government at the top. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> now, let me ask you two questions that I think are on a lot of people's mind again. Uh, And you may be irritated with these questions, but I think they're important, particularly given some of the things that have been in the news of late. And that is uh, around the vaccines and around masking. And it, of course, turned very, very political. And there were some people saying, hey, wait a minute. And there were some people saying, hey, shut up, just get on board, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're starting to see um, some reports that come out that suggest that maybe masking doesn't do anything and never did anything. And some reports that question whether or not the vaccines ever actually did very much or whether we just got to some level of, quote unquote, herd immunity. And so I think it's very hard for the average person, even the average person who's trying to be smart and apolitical, who just wants to know the fucking answer. What is the answer? I think I know, but there's so much noise in the system even for somebody who's trying to educate themselves and trying to look at fairly nonpartisan data. And there's some amazing um, epidemiologists on Substack and so forth and so on. So on those two big topics, masks and vaccines, where are we landing in terms of what we now know about them? So to start off with a disclaimer, I'm a physician, but I'm not an epidemiologist. I haven't been in public health for a while and I haven't been the chief medical officer at Salesforce for a while. So my I'm not diving into this data as deeply as many others anymore. But having said that, I can and speak doctor, to it if as I hate physician. to interrupt you, but you were the chief medical officer of Salesforce, one of the largest tech companies in the world, and you were the chief medical officer of the VA, and so you have sat in some pretty big seats for a person with a medical background to sit in. Yeah, that's right. And so um, I understand the caveat, caveat, and you're in a position to know and to be in a flow of information with the most kind of elite elite medical minds in our country. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, again, the caveat is because I'm not in those circles right now and I'm not so up to date on the latest and the greatest on, on the research. Right. So this is an opinion from me as a, as a physician who is also a mom 
uh, who is making decisions for my own family on these things. Um, having said that, I think as a as somebody who's been in healthcare for a long time, we know masks are a great barrier to um, you know reducing general infections, right? When you when you're in a hospital setting and you're going to a person's room that has that has a an air you know that has like something that can be spread um, you know in the air like a virus, etc. You generally mask up. You wouldn't go in if you're a nurse or a doctor into somebody's room without a mask. Now. If you're if you're going to get get infected and there's it's highly virulent etc right you you wear these special masks in the hospital system they're fitted they don't allow for uh, air to go in similar to our better version of our N95s so I think there's plenty of data that says masks are a great barrier um, both to reduce spread and to prevent like infection. But it has to be a certain type of mask, right? So run-of-the-mill, like a, people used to make masks out of, you know, their socks or cloth mask, et cetera. Like, I don't know how much data there is that it does any good. And are we all going to walk around with N95s tightly fitted that doesn't have the one-way valve, et cetera? Like, probably not, right? Without it, I don't know how much, how much it's going to do. Having said that, when I get on an airplane or I get to a crowded place, what I've noticed is, and I travel a lot, when I mask up, I actually, like, I haven't gotten sick and I travel a lot. And so I don't want to get sick. So for me, it's more common sense. I don't really care about COVID or not COVID anymore. I'm just thinking broader, like there's a lot of stuff in the air, right? There's like flu viruses, there's RSV, there's all sorts of stuff that's around us. And honestly, like I don't do well with child, you know, childhood, like children related viruses. It just doesn't sit well with me. So I'm happy to mask up. It's a personal choice. Um, but I'm not masking up when I'm walking around. I'm not masking up, you know, I've been, I love, I live in California, so I eat out all the time. So I eat outside outdoors. It's great. The weather's fantastic. So I don't know. I mean, I think to some extent, if you, you have to wear a certain type of mask for it to be effective, if not, it's more of a personal choice. Now, if I'm sick and I'm coughing, I tend to wear a mask because I don't want, I, you know, if I, if we can prevent like my aerosols going into somebody and getting them sick 10%, I'm happy to do it. It doesn't bother me. Uh, I don't, I don't really care, but I'm not expecting you to do that. Right. Uh, it'd be great, but it's not happening now on COVID on the vaccines. That's a different story. I mean, look, there's a lot of data on mRNA type vaccines. It's been used for a long time in non, in not in humans, but in animals. Uh, I think the research, even though things came out really fast on the vaccines, there's a ton of research that went back a decade or more on that particular type of vaccine, right? And how effective it is. Having said all that, we don't have the data on all of the things that it can do or does to the human body. And this is where I, you know, I'm bringing up the whole thing around communication. God, I'd love, I'd love somebody to be in charge of this to say, hey, layperson, here's the data from Pfizer or Moderna or whatever. And this is what it means from risks, right? Um, you see people having strokes, you see people having other types, you know, clot, blood clots, et cetera, PE. I would love to see more data on is this vaccine related or is this COVID related, right? Or is it a mix? Like, where's that data? They, somebody must be getting this data, but I'm like, I'd love to see more of it. Now, I'm sure I can find it. I'm in, you know, I'm a physician. I'm in a position where I can go look this stuff up, but I'm not talking about me as a, as a public health expert, remember? Like this is me as a, as a mom and a lay person or, or a doctor. I'd love to see more information that's publicly available on this stuff. Personal opinion, I think vaccines have done a lot to reduce the amount of severity of um, of COVID and help reduce hospitalizations. I don't know yet what that means for young children, young boys on the, the data that we're seeing around um, myocarditis and other inflammation around the heart in young boys. I personally chose to extend the amount of time between my vaccines. So it wasn't like a eight week or 12 week or six week or whatever it is they were recommending. You know, I went, I took my vaccine. I had my second dose a little bit later. I feel like the vaccines are effective for longer periods of time. So I wanted to give more space. 
Um, I'm being careful about how many vaccines I give my kids, especially my young boy. So I, I look at a lot of data on this and I try to make a decision. I think it's terrible that I have to make this decision on my own and I don't have broader help. I would love, I would love to see more of that. And I think this is where a lot of us have landed. Uh, you know, I think many of us don't live in the conspiracy theory, tin hat, freak out world. I think many of us, well, uh, there's some verification we want to see. Don't generally mistrust the government. We know that our government doesn't tell us the whole truth. And we know they massage things all the time. But I'm not somebody who thinks the government's out to kill us. Uh, but on the other hand, there there does appear to be some lack of transparency on some of this stuff. And to your point, uh, you know, we don't really know now what the long-term effects of these drugs are going to be that we all or many of us took. Interestingly enough, as a side note, I have uh, my um, in-laws are elderly, late 80s, early 90s, and they both just recently got covid and um, one of them had to be hospitalized for it, not a ventilator. It was actually, interestingly enough, um, dehydration. And after getting hydrated, he recovered within hours. It was actually quite shocking. Anyway, in, in both cases uh, of, of grandma and grandpa, they went through essentially one, one went through a tough cold. One went through a potentially life-threatening cold, but that was rectified pretty quickly by some extraordinary rapid intervention. And so one of the things, you know, in our family we're wondering is, and they've been vaxxed and boosted and reboosted, and, you know, we fought really hard to keep these people alive. And so one of the things we wonder is, it would appear we should be grateful for these vaccines because they probably help keep grandma and grandpa alive. Um, do we know that? Well, we know, at least the data out there shows that vaccines have shown to reduce the severity of the disease and has been shown to limit hospitalizations, especially in the elderly, right? So if it were me and I was in that 60 plus age group, I would choose to take the vaccine. I would recommend to my friends and family, you should take it because I think there's enough data. Plus, I mean, the consequences of COVID from what we've seen is a lot worse. You could just get better or you could not. And so if you have a chance to reduce it, why not just, why not take it? What's the worst thing that could happen, right? Um, now it's different for, for children. Like I said, I, I would like to see a lot more. These are kids that are 5, 10, 15 years old. They have a long life ahead of them. And I'd like to see more data on, on this as we move forward. So I believe that vaccines have been helpful. Now, are they perfect? No. I'd like to continue to see more layperson data out there from, you know, the CDC, NIH, et cetera, discussing these you know, uh, things and talking about how likely or unlikely some of these complications are so that people can make their own decisions. Um, but I, I, you know, I think the vaccines have been really, really helpful. Having said all that, the thing that really bothers me is lack of discourse. You know, I live in the Bay Area. I don't want to be in, a, in an environment where things are so politicized you know, that you can't have real discourse. And I think that's that's critical, right? Especially in academia. Academics, like you go to an academic environment because you want people arguing over things so that you come to some sort of an understanding. There's plenty of data, research, et cetera. What we saw is at many institutions, there were lots of, you know, PMD, PhDs, et cetera, epidemiologists who sat on either side of the fence. And it almost felt like, one side was a little bit muzzled because of all the conspiracy theories. At least from my perspective, I'm like, listen, don't muzzle people. Let's actually hear from both sides. Let's have a discourse. If, if the data shows that it's truly helpful and it reduces infection, I think the discourse is actually helpful because that comes out. Like muzzling people lends to more conspiracy theories, right? So that's number one. Two... Let's get off our high horses and not just have these conversations at like Harvard, Stanford, like the elite institutions, right? Let's take it down to where it matters. If people get their information about all of the stuff at like a barber shop or your local nail salon, et cetera, like make this information so easy to consume, backed by data, that you're actually out in the community talking about the benefits or 
you know, complications because of these, these things. These are serious things we're talking about, but you got to get it down to where people are. Right. And I think those two things I didn't see. Um, I didn't see that we had that. And I'm hoping that that's a, you know, that's a learned experience for us uh, so that it helps us make these decisions. Should grandpa, grandpa, you know, grandma take vaccine? I say, yes. Should a 10 year old boy, you know, get multi boosted? I think vaccines are helpful. I'd like to see more data, right? And I don't want to be penalized for saying that out loud. Right, or canceled or any of the other things that have happened yeah. to many. Who, look, I think there were some people who were being nefarious and political and some people trying to raise money off this and some people doing evil things on all sides of this debate. Um, so that that sits in a different bucket. But if you assume that the majority of people who, uh, at the time and to today, who want to have thoughtful, fact-based discussions about this stuff, uh, who may come to different conclusions, but I, I want to hear those conversations. And, and I think treating the American people like they're stupid is stupid. And I think the antidote to speech you don't like is more speech, not trying to get people to shut up. I agree with that. That's right. It's like basic communications 101, right? You, you've this is actually healthy, healthy conversations where people disagree and learn. It's healthy. It's healthy for all of us. Um, but yeah, I hear you. I agree with you. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk, ask you some questions about you, if I could. So yeah, shoot. at least looking at you on paper, uh, holy fucking career lady, way to go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so um, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? I... Um, Look, the funny answer is I'm an Indian woman. I was born into an Indian family. I think you've got like maybe three choices, doctor, lawyer, engineer. <laughs> so I picked doctor. Um, no, but seriously, I think my my grandfather was a, uh, what we now call concierge doctor, but back then he was the town doctor. He'd ride around on his bicycle and take care of people. I've got tons of doctors in my family. My father is a veterinarian. I've just always been around people in medicine and I was exposed to it from a very early age. My mom's a lawyer, but I sort of, those were my two areas that I was exposed to. And I love met, you know, I love taking care of people. I love people. And so, you know, for me from a very early age, I wanted to be like my grandfather. I wanted to take care of the community, the town. That's of course, that's not where I went, but always been interested in like, the human body, just interested in STEM in general. I was a math and physics major in college, always veered towards healthcare. It's just such an interesting field, right? There's so much impact you can have. So I, I, I love it. I've always loved being in this field. Well, and thank you. I have, uh, I've collected many friends in the healthcare field over time nurses, doctors, and various professionals at various things. And the medical professionals who are my friends are literally angels on this earth. I know that to be true. And uh, unfortunately, my, my family doctor retired very recently, but she was my doctor for over 25 years. And uh, she's an angel. And so, and I'm sure there's people in healthcare who are not angels. <laughs> Yep. But man, um, there seem to be, at least as a user of our healthcare system, a disproportionate number of angels. And uh, my father-in-law, who recently got COVID, was in the hospital prior to getting COVID. And to see the care that he got um, was extraordinary, uh, the love and care and support for a man in his 90s. And so I just, my experience as a healthcare system user, not that there aren't problems with the system, there's lots of them, but I'm talking about the individuals in the system. When you interact with a frontline nurse or a frontline doctor trying to care for you or your family member, it has been, in my experience in general, these people really give a shit. Yeah. I mean, my experience too, and thank you for differentiating the system from the person. My experience in this field, you know, I, I went to, I started medical school in 1995, I've been around in the space and around folks in medicine for a long time. And I've found like generally people care and generally people want to help. 
and they care about the people that they're taking care of. And so, and it doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a nurse, like people in healthcare go into it for a reason. You're not in it to make money. That's for sure. Um, it, it is a field because you love, you love helping people. Um, having said that our system could get fixed, <laughs> right? That's a different story, but um, yeah, doctors, nurses. I mean, I know for me, I could never have gotten through the ICU rotation without nurses helping me. Um, I think we've got to learn to work as a team and it's been a great experience for me, um, being in this field, working with like all of the different parts of that team that work when it, when it works, it works really, really well. And you can take care of a person really well. Um, so yeah, I, I think generally people want to do good. As I shared with the incredible doctors and nurses and healthcare providers that cared for my father-in-law in his most recent um, stay, uh, any day you walk out of a hospital with a 92-year-old dude who is in good health is a really fucking good day. Hallelujah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. It seems like I you know, did some homework on your background. It seems like they, there might have come a point in your career where you decided you wanted to uh, not treat patients, but move to a different place to try to make a difference in a different way. And ultimately, you became the chief medical officer of the VA. And were you the first chief medical officer at Salesforce? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I mean, I think there were other, there was another physician there before me. Um, but I did have the, I think, officially the first title, but doesn't matter. I was one or two of the... But you've been in these very big organizations, the VA close to, I think, all of our hearts for hopefully what are very obvious reasons. And then Salesforce, one of the most um, admirable companies in our industry. And I think Mark Benioff's one of the greatest entrepreneurs and category designers in our history. And so could you tell me, Dr. Ash, what was it that made you shift from thinking, I'm going to care for patients and be in practice to, I want to move into a different areas um, to, to try to make a difference from a different spot. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like that inflection point, right? It's not that I don't want to take care of people. Um, you know, I'm still a licensed physician. I still go in, I volunteer at the VA still. So uh, I'm still active, but for a day-to-day -day job, you know, I think the point for me, and I've talked about this a little bit um, at other times in my life was when my mom got ovarian cancer. I think moving from the lens of a physician to a caregiver, um, honestly, I was shocked at how bad the system is when you get sick, right? M mostly my mom, my dad, me, you know, my family, we'd experience care as a well person. You going for your dental visits, you go in for your yearly checkups, you get your blood drawn, like everything's great. At that point, you're really a consumer, not a patient, right? And you're expecting to consume care the same way you consume, you know, everything else. But once you get sick, and I mean chronically ill, it completely changes. You don't want to be a consumer. You want to be treated like a human being who is not well. And you want to make, you want everybody to make life easy for you, right? Because it is really centered around that patient. But what I found is, uh, as a system, we're not set up for that. And of course, this was, you know, this was over a decade ago. And so things have changed a little bit, not a whole lot. But for me, it was seeing a woman, you know, drop down to 80, 90 pounds, not having at that time, the ability to have telehealth visits, not having the ability to check in with your doctor by text or video, having to take this person in the middle of the night to the emergency room because something had happened for something minor, right? Those options didn't exist at that time. Our medical records, you know, they put a ton of money into the medical record modernization. Uh, we have what's called electronic medical records, right? Um, but it didn't help. I mean, she had her electronic medical records in multiple different places that she got care, but mostly it was not linked. Uh, you hear about how the data is all linked. Yeah, I mean, some of the data, but not all of the data. Imaging is one. There's no central repository where you can go in and get all of the images about a person for their care. So, you know, in her case, um, 
I used to carry around a computer with a CD-ROM with all of her CDs to kind of show people where the tumors were for surgical planning and follow-up. It's atrocious. Nobody should have to go through care that way. And even with all that, because they didn't have it in their system, the follow the people that were doing the planning outside of the doctor that I spoke to at the top missed that she had a mass behind her spleen and left it behind. And so that immediately changed her chances of recovery and survival. And so, you know, I think for me, it was really eye-opening to see how hard it is for people going through the system. I mean, there's no like Yelp for doctors, really, right? If you're struggling with a certain types of rare disease or you're, you want the best doctor that cares for this certain population or whatever, we just don't have it. We don't have any sort of like, where it, do I go? It seems insane, does it not? It's uh, insane. I mean, uh, you have to pay recently, for a concierge ex- doctor. Most recently with my father-in-law. So he went in for this one procedure, got spooky, got right. He got out, got COVID. When he got COVID, we called his family doctor and said, you know, what do we do? Because we thought he's got to go in. And she confirmed that he's got to go in. Well, the, the hospital closest to where he was was not the hospital he was at for the prior procedure. But she said, take him to the that hospital because they have all of his most current information. And I literally said to her, yeah, but if we take him to the other hospital, can't they just access it? And she said, not with any kind of speed. And he's, they're going to need to compare his vitals now and everything else now to where it was just a few days ago when they, um, when they, um, when they um, uh, discharged him. And, and, you know, in that moment, as a guy who spent 35 years in the technology industry, I'm going, what, what, what? Don't we have all, I got all my family photographs in the fucking cloud. How come Papa's medical (laughs) records aren't in the cloud? It's crazy. And there's, you know, there's no incentive to have a patient mediated cloud, right? Because ultimately it's like, who's going to pay for it? That's what everybody asks. Who's going to pay for it? So I'm like, these are things, again, I don't know if it's government. I don't know who should be doing this stuff, but I think it's incumbent on all of us to have these frank discussions because I found it to be absurd that you don't have the ability to put all your patient information in one place, that it's not easily accessible. And you have to go to certain hospitals, right, where they have your records. It's it's bizarre to me. And there's, you, there's no place for you to go look up and say, okay, I have this type of cancer and I'm this old and I'm this whatever ethnicity. Where's the best place for me to go? Or where's the best place for me to go near my home for this care, right? And what's the, I keep going back to Yelp, like rating for my doctor and why are they rated that? Like, there's just no, it doesn't exist. And compiled with all of that, you know, what I started receiving were all these like statements from the insurance company telling me about like, and it was like hundreds of pages of information about things that she was getting, you know, reimbursed and things that weren't eligible for. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how, and I don't know how lay people deal with this. I'm in this industry and I understand. I don't know how we deal with it either. It's crazy. And so things have changed a little bit. There's more price transparency. There's, you know, a little bit more interoperability. Now we've got telemedicine in the mix, right? So things are improving, but not a whole lot. From 10, 15 years ago to today, it's like we're going snail pace. And I think it's about time that we accelerate the stuff. And, you know, unfortunate to say this, but the one thing COVID did was completely open and shine, you know, shine some sunlight on some of these areas that were so dark and hidden for so long because yes. it became like a national crisis. And so um, you seem like a very mission-driven uh, person, Dr. Ash. And so <laughs> I hope so. That's my experience of you. And if I'm not mistaken, and correct me, obviously, if I'm wrong, your new company, you've raised over $500 million. Is that correct in, in venture funding? We've raised a lot. We haven't ever come out with the amount, but we've raised a lot of money. Well, Crunchbase yes. says 545, I think, is what they say. <laughs> but uh, well, If Crunchbase says it, then it must be true. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. But whatever the number is, you've got some top-tier VCs, General Catalyst, and many others. And you've clearly raised a meaningful amount of money, not just a few million dollars on a skunk works. It's, it's, and I know some uh, very smart people in the, in the IT healthcare world and in the sort of uh, enterprise tech meets healthcare world, there's been a graveyard of 
tech startups there. And I uh, had the pleasure of working with a couple that thought they were going to change the world, went public, raised a lot of money, and, um, and are now bumping along the bottom of the ocean, not doing very much. And so um, I guess in the tech venture world that I grew up in and am in, there's been a, let's call it, um, mixed history of success in building uh, what, what we would normally think of as enterprise software that you'd sell to you know, a manufacturing company or a distribution company or a media company or what have you, and selling that into healthcare like I think you were trying to do back in the Salesforce days, or building technology like I think you're trying to do now, which is to, and you'll hopefully tell me, aggregate some of this data and, and make um, some of the things possible that we can do as a consumer on our uh, iPhone that seems easy. You know, DoorDash is easy, but Papa's medical records are not. This is nuts. And so um, tell me how you folks think about that that problem and, and why you think you got a chance at, at oh, sort of solving some of these problems. Yeah. I mean, look, at least for us, our core business model internally, what we've come up with is I think healthcare needs a true operating system and a system where you can share these records really easily, right? And I'm, I'm using records as just one component, but healthcare needs a dedicated operating system. I mean, building in healthcare and IT is not for the faint hearted. It's a very nuanced industry. It's got a lot of regulation. Um, there is data that you can't share with certain parties. You know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of like guardrails around healthcare, which is why you see, um, you know, things sitting in the graveyard, right? So you really have to know how to build in healthcare. And it's also not just like always a SaaS model. Sometimes you have to just make it easy for the consumer, which is, you know, if you're selling into a hospital or you're selling into a small ambulatory clinic, you can't go there like you would in, in a SaaS platform and say, here you go, go figure it out. That's not how it works. I mean, people in healthcare, they're trying to deal with like taking care of patients, labor shortage, you know, low hospital, hospital operating margins. There's all sorts of like things that they're, that's top of mind for them. Figuring out how to implement your SaaS, you know, whatever system is not like top of mind. So you know, you've got to be okay with having some services up front and making it easy and just taking that on and taking on some lower margins to make this business successful, right? So that's kind of like the lens we're coming from. I would say there are three areas that are really important to us. We are focusing on the healthcare workforce, whether you're in a hospital or an insurance company or ambulatory, you know, a single office provider, we care about connecting, protecting, and empowering the healthcare workforce. So those are our pillars that we look at. Connecting, we just talked about, there's so much data that's sitting out there that just don't, it's not connected to each other. And we, we, you and I just talked about connecting data from one hospital to the other hospital. Forget that. When somebody goes into the hospital, there's so much data in that hospital that's sitting in silos and they're not connected to each other. And so you're looking at just a small piece of whatever was written in the medical record, but there's all this other stuff that the patient, you know, is in an area that's hard for them to travel from, or they have like food insecurity, or, you know, they, they have diabetes and they need money for insulin and they're working, their, you know, insurance doesn't cover more than X. And so they have a ton of out-of-pocket costs for insulin. So there's all these like other notes that are sitting out there. They're not connected to each other. So how do you take care of a whole person when you can't connect the data and make it meaningful, right? So we focus on that. We make sure that you can bring the right data together and have it be actionable at the point of care or at the point of whenever you're dealing with a person. So that's one. Did you say, doctor, I hate to interrupt you, but I, th I heard you say something amazing in there. Did you say, how do you care for the whole person without the data? Is that how you said it? That's right. That's right. You cannot care for the whole person if you don't have all the information at your fingertips that's relevant. And I mean, like, you know, we talk about, oh, so-and-so has this disease and I have a list of all their meds and all their disease. Great. But do you know if their insurance covers it? Do you know if they have insurance? Do you know if they live in an area where they can't get to the hospital? Do you need to send them somewhere else? Like, who, who helps you think about all this stuff? And is it really the responsibility of a doctor? And the interdependencies... And maybe your your healthcare will pay for this drug, but not that drug. That's it. And so it's this massive 
sort of Rubik's cube of data. And of course, in the healthcare domain, you know, and having just experienced this with my father-in-law, you know, well, he's on a whole bunch of meds. He's 92 years old. Okay. So now we're going to do a bunch of shit to him. Well, somebody smart better be asking, okay, this new shit that we're going to do to him, what about the old meds? And how do, is there pros and cons or are we doing a little And luckily in his case, you know, there was three primary doctors, actually four. There was an attending doctor, there was a GI doctor, there was a heart doctor, and then there was his family doctor. So there's four doctors plus the nursing team. And God bless them, they were all over it. And they briefed each other and everybody knew and they were moving in coordination like an incredible underwater ballerina, you know, display. And so it was wonderful. But, you know, when you experience something like this, to your point, you see if it's not at that level of attention by very high end people, you know, they could prescribe him one thing and not realize about the other. And holy fuck, now we're in a lot of trouble. That's right. Again, I'm talking about like the population that needs this sort of care that are it's like the very sick, right? The 5% of the population that lives in that very sick chronic disease bucket that's take, you know, that needs a 50% of our, our, of our spend, right? I'm talking that bucket. Yes, we all, you and I also need to be able to get drugs delivered at home. You and I also need telemedicine, right? That's all great. Like for those of us that are like healthy and out of the hospital, let's make it easy for them too. But let's also focus because like you said, we've got to connect all the stuff We've got to like get these people, this team that you just talked about empowered. So they need all the communication tools. They need all the data at their fingertips at the right place. So you can connect and empower them to do their job. Everybody just talks about the patients and their data. You know what? It's not their responsibility. Get the workforce, get them empowered in a way where they can have all that stuff in, in a single place to take care of the person. Because at the end of the day, right, it's all about taking care of these people on the other end that need the care. And one more thing we added into our connect empower and then protect because there's been a rapid rise of workplace violence in healthcare. Do you know there's no more violence in the healthcare industry than, you know, more, more healthcare, healthcare workforce workers like see violence in the workplace than police and security? It's insane and it's worsened with the pandemic. And so we added that as a pillar. Oh, uh, sorry, doctor, like, slow down here for the, some of us didn't go to school. There's more Healthcare workers face more violence than police officers. That's right. That's right. Holy more, shit. Yep. And it's really important to like recognize that because, you know, we talk about all this other stuff, but it's Maslow's like hierarchy, right? If you can't take care of like people in a safe, if you can't be in a safe environment, the last thing you're thinking about is like how to do all this communication and care collaboration. Who's being violent with healthcare professionals? Unfortunately, it's a lot of times it's patient and family members. So, and you know, other people, there's a lot of stuff in this area. And well, we because they don't think they're getting the care they want. So I'm going to punch the doctor. Yeah. I mean, there's, this is the, lo this is the logic or what's the, how, how does this even, I don't understand it. Look, I mean, I think there are a lot of forces at play here. There are people that are frustrated about the type of care they're getting. There's frustration because maybe there's something not covered in their insurance. There's frustration because of all the political climate, right, around vaccine masking mandates, et cetera. But it's just gotten worse. And now there's politicization around all sorts of other things, right? Um, abortion bans. There's stuff around, you know, gender affirming care, right? Like you could be on either side of the fence. Like you could go to a hospital that's, providing gender affirming care for young children and you're opposed to it. And maybe you're religiously, I mean, I don't know, right. I don't know, but it happens. But aside outside of all of that, like I can tell you for me, I've taken care of uh, people that have mental health diseases, mental health, behavioral health issues, and you're alone. So, you know, as a radiologist, sometimes like I'm doing stuff by myself or me and one other person, there's just no infrastructure around us to, call for help, et cetera. So I'm amazed at the lack of security in hospitals. I mean, you could just walk right into a hospital with any kind of weapon you wanted. There's no security. There's no uh, metal detector. There's nobody there. You just walk right into the ER. You just walk around all over, the, do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. I mean, ideally you want to be in an environment where you feel safe, where you can walk around. Right. But again, this is kind of going back to the politics of like gun violence. There's so much other stuff happening 
And when you're really sick or stressed or you have anxiety or depression, a lot of that follows you into your care environment. And the people that see the brunt of it are your frontline caregivers, your nurses, your doctors, your staff that's helping you, you know, with your forms, et cetera, can face all sorts of not just physical, but also like verbal threats and verbal violence, right? And so we've seen a rapid rise of this where it's it's becoming an epidemic. And so we added that pillar to how we're going to help because it's like, like I said, it's this Maslow's hierarchy. It's like, if you're not safe, you're not focusing on anything else. Unbelievable. Um, so how far, doctor, yeah. are we from, you know, I remember my doctor years ago saying that this, her iPhone, was her most important medical device. And me finding that to be a very interesting point that she was making. And so how far away are we, for example, uh, of having a connected system where if I was a doctor or a nurse or some other medical uh, care provider and I'm going to go see you a patient in a hospital, somebody who needs acute care, I'm parachuting in to do my part of it. How far away are we from on a device having the, that integrated Rubik's Cube of data presented in, in in a way that I can deal with it in a way that deals with the patient in their current situation. You know, this this thing that I think many of us have, have seen as an ideal where, where you can have just-in-time information that is context-sensitive, um, that is aware of the patient, um, and, and is guiding the healthcare professional based on the patient's, patient's history and available data about treatments and various other approaches and all the things you could imagine that you would want. You know, if you think about chat GPT, right, I can take a, a, a newsletter that we just wrote that is 4,000 words. I can dump it into chat GTP and say, write me a, a, a LinkedIn post uh, summarizing this. And it does a pretty good job. And so we're starting to see this sort of commercial uh, application of uh, consumer oriented AI. How far are we from a day like that where on a device like this, a medical professional would have a radical amount of information to make just-in-time decisions to help save people's lives? That's a great question. And to that, I'm going to say it's not a technology problem, right? I, I think if you allow it from a technology perspective, we're pretty close. We have the ability, like you just said, to take data, dump it in, condense it, have it made available. There's all sorts of different you know, types of AI, of course, with that goes responsibility of how and who uses it, right? So there's this idea of responsible innovation that I talk about and uh, Hamant at General Catalyst talks about. So many of us subscribe to this principle of responsible innovation. It's not, it's not the technology. Uh, the technology will continue to improve. So you'll get better and better data. You'll get, you know, AI, machine learning, thinking through all the stuff to bring you the right type of data and it's going to get better, but it's here today. The problem is adoption. And I think the bigger problem is, I think there's a leadership crisis that's happening in healthcare. We need a change in how we think about this stuff and how we think about technology and allowing technology to be a catalyst. Unfortunately, in healthcare, because there's so much other stuff going on, the easy answer is, let's just keep what we have and make some incremental changes. Well, you know what? Incremental changes aren't good enough. And we don't want to be disruptive because... I mean, we're dealing with life and death after all. So you don't want to go in there and disrupt everything. So who, who the hell wants that? But you need to be able to collaborate with the technologists. You need to be able to collaborate with the, with the people that are using these sort of devices. You need hospital leaders. You need insurance leaders to be thinking about what is the best way I can make this change to have all this data available. And sometimes it may mean, you know, migrating your technology stack to something new. It may mean dealing with some uncomfortable change management, right? And getting people adopted. Like I remember going through, uh, I'm a radiologist that trained during a time where we'd hang up films. We'd literally have this rolling system and I'd hang up physical films. And you had to be taught today, in, in somewhat similar ways to a photographer, yes? Yes. It's a dark yes. room essentially, and yes? That's right. I moved away from that dark room to a computer monitor where all my stuff was automatically loaded. I could search, right? It's gotten better and better and better. But man, we all resisted. We resisted and many of us quit, right? We didn't want to deal with that change. I also came out of the era where I used to write paper notes and stick it in folders. And today we have these medical records. They're not perfect, but we've come a long way and many of us resisted change. It's like you're dealing with so much stuff. Adoption is hard in healthcare because 
who wants to deal with this on top of everything else? But if you don't have leaders at the top thinking about these things, thinking about like how to bring in these innovations responsibly, how to scale it, not making those incremental changes, we could get there a lot faster than we need to, than we, sh- you know, than we probably will. But unfortunately, all of this is dependent on getting the entire system to move fast. Like I said, COVID helped us do that to some extent. Unfortunately, I'm hoping we don't need another COVID to hmm. get us to the next step. And as a startup CEO and as a, as a startup, you know, representing your entire team, some people say it's, small, it's hard for a small company to make a big difference. But we know the history of entrepreneurship tells us that's not the case. And so if Crunchbase is right, you certainly have a war chest uh, of venture capital, but you still are a startup trying to make a difference in a big uh, giant mega category. And so um, how do you do that, doctor? Yeah, so we are a startup, but I think the thing that we do differently is we have what we call lighthouse customers. We have systems that are bought into what we're doing and they are, they're radically collaborating with us on these things and they're willing to take a chance and change, right? They're willing to look at like things more holistically all the way to the top. You know, I always talk to these CEOs and I want them bought in when I go to these hospitals or ambulatory care centers or insurance companies. I'm like, are you bought in at the top? Because you are the chief innovation officer. You're the chief change maker. If you're not bought in, nobody else is going to get bought in. So let's talk about like, what is the end state you want to see? Right. And so we have a couple of those change makers on our side and they're willing to work with us hand in hand to drive these changes. And they're willing to feel the pinch of like, you know, what this would mean in the short term, because they've got long term objectives to change healthcare. So as long as we've got those guys on our side, I think we're going to be OK. Dr. Ash, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Really appreciate the conversation you know, loved, loved chatting about all sorts of things with you. And I'm excited for, I am actually very optimistic about the future and, uh, you know, look out for Camure and see what we will be doing in the market. Well, I'm very, very excited. Uh, I was very excited to hear about your company, uh, who your backers are, your technology sounds very exciting. And uh, I think it's extraordinary that you as somebody who started off with a, a, a dad uh, on a bicycle as a doctor, um, has now had this career and is now a, a technology entrepreneur. It's, it's a hell of a ride and a very inspiring one, Ash. Thank you, Christopher. I'm not done yet. So, oh, I know. And you know. I'll be back. Please come back. You are welcome back anytime and uh, can't wait to see the progress that you and Kumir make. Thank you so much. Nice chatting. Thank you so much. Well, there she is, Dr. Ashvini Zanuz. And uh, she is the radiologist who became the chief medical officer of the VA then Salesforce, and now she's the CEO of this hot company trying to change the future of healthcare, Comure. And you can find her at Comure.com. That's C-O-M-M-U-R-E.com. C-O-M-M-U-R-E.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget that word of mouth is, was, and always will be the most powerful form of marketing, and we appreciate your WOM. So uh, please share this uh, podcast with your friends. Post it on social media. Uh, I don't know, maybe print up flyers and drop them out of helicopters. But we sure, do, we sure do appreciate your advocacy. All right. We would like to thank. Thank you. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. It means the world to me and to all of us here at Follow Your Different. Also, remember our friends at Lomi, L-O-M-I. Lomi is the world's first smart home composter. And it makes food waste a thing of the past. You see, Lomi takes food waste and turns it into some of the most nutrient magic dirt in the world. In a few hours, unlike traditional composting that takes months, you can take your disgusting, wet, dripping bags of garbage and put it into Lomi. And uh, Lomi will turn it into some of the most nutrient-dense dirt on the planet. So visit LOMI.com. That's LOMI.com and pick up your Lomi today. We sure love ours around here. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and to this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking and exponential outcomes. Uh, speaking of exponential outcomes, don't forget to go to Amazon.com and pick up the Marketer's Guide to Category Design. If you want to produce a breakthrough in revenue, check out the Marketer's Guide to Category Design on Amazon today. Uh, I also need to tell you that all oddcasts do contain nuts and forward-looking statements 
All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time. His name is Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. My friends Sarah Knox and Jamie J build Lockhead.com and do other technical awesome shit around here. Show notes by GM Simon, the uh, Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. Uh, we uh, use ADHD, Dolby ADHD technology, and we, we record every episode on Squadcast.fm. Don't forget that Tom Waits was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mum and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.